Indeed, the result of that scheme, a half-bull, half-man monster, inspired Daedalus's greatest creation yet. He hid the Minotaur in the labyrinth, a maze of passages and rooms opening endlessly into one another, and from which, as stray youths and maidens discovered to their peril, escape was impossible. This sounds unsettlingly like the Marquis de Sade again. I'm not sure I actually want to read this. No, no, this is growing up in Pennsylvania. That sounds even worse. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello, and welcome to Outside of a Dog. Sitting next to me, although, as always, he is strangely distant, it is Christian Schneider. And right next to me, hiding his true intentions and possibly his sexuality, is Jonas Hock. For this episode, we read a classic of the graphic novel genre, if in this relatively recent new genre you can speak of classics, Fun Home by Alison Bechdel. Yeah, Fun Home is definitely one of those graphic novels that is constantly listed as one of the great ones, and also usually referred to as one that shows how serious the medium, the genre can be, that it doesn't deal with superheroes or loud explosions, but it deals with questions of memory, of loss, of homosexuality and sexuality in general. So, yeah, this is really, quote, serious stuff, unquote. The book is described as a family tragic comic on the cover, and it is an autobiography by Alison Bechtel. From her early childhood until her early 20s, when she's in college, just shortly after the death, possible suicide of her father, Bruce Bechtel. In this autobiography, she deals mainly with the relationship with her father, but also with her experience of growing up and with realizing that she is actually a lesbian. Interestingly, this is mirrored by her father as well, who throughout his life hid his homosexuality, which led to all kinds of catastrophes, but also to a real identity crisis, not just for him, but for the entire family. The, the title, Fun Home, refers to the fact that the family ran a funeral home, which I refer to as the Fun Home. But her father was also a high school English teacher. So identity, sexuality, and literature are what I would call the major themes of the graphic novel. The graphic novel came out in 2006, but Bechtel, who until then was mainly famous for her strip Dykes to Watch Out For, where she also dealt with the life of lesbian women in the US nowadays, had worked on the graphic novel for seven years. And that you can really see in the book. She spent an enormous amount of time to get every little detail right, to recreate the wallpaper, the way certain things, certain objects looked. She even dressed up as her parents to get the images of them in certain perspectives, right? So she said that her obsessive compulsive disorder played a part in creating this thing. And if you know it, then you can really see it on every page. And that may also be part of why Fun Home was celebrated upon its publication. It is, as I said, seen as one of the great graphic novels of the past 25 years and is universally lauded. And it has even been turned into a Broadway musical, which in itself has become quite popular and critically successful. Let us talk about Fun Home as a graphic novel first and about the style. As I said in the Watchmen episode, I'm not really an expert on graphic novels, whereas you are. And in this second proper great graphic novel that I read, I really like the style a lot more than I did in Watchmen. It's 
not so colorful. It's very monochrome, actually. It's black and white, except for a sort of pale greenish blue. But there are no strong colors, so it's very taken back. The style is also not very realistic. It is cartoonish, which is only appropriate, of course. But then sometimes there's insertions, for example, of photographs, which are drawn in a much more realistic way you could say, more traditional way. And I really enjoyed looking at these drawings. I really enjoyed this style, and I found it a lot more readable than Watchmen, definitely. It's interesting that you mentioned that, that you found it more readable, because what I realize when reading it is that a lot of the important things aren't in the drawings at all. The narrative voice represented in the text boxes is present throughout the entire graphic novel. And Alison Bechtel herself has said that she chose to write the graphic novel because she's a cartoonist, so that's the medium she's familiar with, but at the same time that she really had to write down her thoughts and her memories in a more verbal way. And I think that is quite interesting, that this is a very verbose graphic novel, that the images play an important role, but the text, the words, are maybe even more important. So maybe it's simply something that is closer to a regular novel that I'm more used to. Maybe it's that. The style is not as confusing or complex as Watchmen's style sometimes is. There's no layouts that you have to consider. You can just read through the whole thing. The more complex part is basically putting words and images together. And there, there is actually some complexity, I think. The passage we read in the beginning, for example, where the Greek myth of Daedalus and Icarus is described is juxtaposed to a visual sequence where Alison Bechtel is running from the house because she fears the wrath of her father. So her father is kind of equated to Daedalus and she to Icarus. And so this interplay of images and words is, I think, really, really interesting. I know that I might be overstepping my qualifications a bit as a relative novice to graphic novels, but I would say, for me at least, Fun Home uses the medium of the graphic novel much better than Watchmen does. <laughs> And I realize that probably I don't catch all the subtleties in Watchmen. She uses the images to give us little details that you could never include in a regular novel without being completely obnoxious. For example, the little stain on the headboard of her grandparents' bed that was still there years after the grandfather's death. That's something that you would have to describe very laboriously in prose. But you can just show it in an image and then write a little note, stain left by my grandfather's uh, head when he was still alive. But even if she doesn't draw attention to it, these little details are there. At one point we see that she has a sheet music for... Pergolesi's Stabat Mater in her college dorm room. And that intrigued me. I mean, Pergolesi is not one of those composers that you immediately know, like Mozart or Beethoven. I thought, oh, interesting. I wonder what that sounds like. And I found Pergolesi's Stabat Mater in a very good recording. And then I listened to it whilst reading the rest of the book. And it made a very appropriate soundtrack for a lot of the parts. That wouldn't have been possible, really, in a traditional novel. So I feel that just the presence of the images really enriched my experience in a way that I didn't necessarily feel in Watchmen. The details are really part of the narration to a great deal. And her focusing on the details and whether she's remembering these details correctly and kind of doubting herself all of the time, I think that adds to the tone of the graphic novel very much. So the question of remembering, 
of dealing with memory, of remembering one's own life. This is very important because Fun Home is, you might say, a double biography. On the one hand, it's a biography of Bruce Bechtel, Alison Bechtel trying to come close to him, to his life, what he was going through. And on the other hand, it's, of course, an autobiography of her own life, her own coming of age, her realization of her sexuality and her relationship with her father. And it's not only this double biography, it's also a very, very self-conscious biography. Because, as I said, she keeps repeating certain details, telling the readers that she isn't quite sure whether it was like that, whether she remembers correctly, she was only told that. In a... And then, of course, there are the things that she cannot know. Her father dies because he's run over by a truck. And, well, was that suicide? Or did he jump into the road because he saw a snake? She thinks it was probably a suicide, but she cannot know for sure. So it's, on the one hand, an approach to these things that you cannot know because people don't tell you. On the other hand, it's an approach to these things that you cannot know because nobody can know them. That is one of the themes of this podcast, apparently. People are really fucked up when they realize that they cannot know certain things. And especially in modernism, that is something that people really struggle with, this unknowability of the universe. I think we will come back to that notion of modernism, because modernism also plays a very important part in Alison Bechtel's graphic novel, and apparently the life with her father. But I want to come back to that notion of autobiography. Do you think that the book suffers from her kind of self-consciousness or that you rather get an additional level, that it's more authentic, more truthful, because Alison Bechtel admits that she doesn't know certain things, that she has no final answer in the end. She doesn't know who her father was. She cannot even come close to understanding him and his motivation and so on. I think there's nothing more obnoxious than an autobiography where somebody thinks that they've got their life all figured out. That's not an autobiography, that's an autohagiography. And it's tiresome. So this is much more interesting. Alison Bechtel seems like a person who's actually interesting after I've read her autobiography, whereas a lot of other people seem really dull. It's also intriguing for me, this problem we talked about in our last episode about Kafka. The artwork in relation to the artist's life. And with Kafka, you said, no, we can read his books completely separate from his life, and we should. What about this now? Surely here you will have to admit that Alison Bechtel's life is significant for how we read her graphic novel about her life. Obviously, I can't deny that. But what you can still see separately, I think, or I would argue at least, is the way it is dealt with. I mean... Her life, and the life of her father especially, could have been an entirely different plot. It could have been kind of Hollywood weepy or a murder mystery or whatever. But instead, she chose to tell this story in a very particular way. And that way of telling that story, this very self-conscious, very articulate, very intertextual way, that we can, I think, kind of separate from the actual person, Alison Bechtel, and attribute to the author, Alison Bechtel. I would love to disagree with you as vociferously as I did with Kafka, but somehow I don't feel about this so strongly. Because somehow, when the author tells me, oh yeah, this is my life, then I think, oh, oh, okay, I'm not bothered really. It's only when an author doesn't tell me that, and when there's this intriguing possibility, oh, is this maybe about the author's life, that I really fall back into old bad habits that have been outmoded since before my birth. 
of interpreting works in relation to the author's life and that I cannot escape this allure of the author. But somehow when the author tells me up front, yeah, that's me, that's my life, it's not as interesting. I mean, there's still interesting aspects. Um, again, there is no definite answer. And the reader themselves may start to think, okay, Bruce Bechtel is obviously a very complex and mysterious character, at least as his daughter describes him. So you might think about that in more detail. What was his life like? What must it have been like to grow up in that house? Although that part, at least, Alison Bechtel, she's very candid about that. And I think her family, so her mother and her brothers, weren't too happy about some of the details that came out in the graphic novel. She actually thanked them in the uh, epilogue for not preventing her from writing this book. And I can see why they might have, because the, the fact that they grew up in this small town and that it's such a small place where everyone knows everyone is central to the story as well. And in such a place, when the people start reading this book... I can imagine that the Bechtel family got some very strange looks after the publication. Talking about strange looks, I mean, what is so special about the Bechtels, Alison and Bruce's biography, you might say, is that both of them had to deal with their respective homosexuality. And while Alison might say came to terms with that more easily because she grew up in a different time, Bruce Bechtel suppressed his sexuality for the longest time. That is very interesting as well, this notion of different approaches towards sexuality, towards queerness, and how that influences one's life. It's interesting what you said about the father and the daughter both experiencing the way that they were able to deal with their homosexuality in such a different way. Because when I first read the graphic novel, I thought, oh yeah, it's a coming out story. And oh yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's this kind of story that you know about uh, people realizing in childhood that they're maybe not as society expects them to be, and maybe they uh, get interested in, uh, for example, wearing clothes that are not particularly associated with their gender and then they hear that there's such a thing as homosexuality and are intrigued by that and then in their late teens early 20s they have their first experiences and they discover that well okay i've heard that i've heard that a lot already but then i realized oh hang on <laughs> the fact that this can seem tired to me that this can seem like a bit of a cliche is incredible because in my father's lifetime this could still be punished by the law so Come on, let's let's put this into perspective. Yes, this is a story that you've heard a lot, but I think it's a story that is important to be heard. And especially because now nowadays people will experience coming out and discovering that they're homosexual yet again very differently from Alison Bechtel in the 70s and 80s. But it's important to know this history. It's important to know that there was a time where it wasn't possible to just tell people, oh yeah, by the way, I'm gay. Because otherwise, um, even in the time where we're slowly making progress, we might slide back very easily and people might say, oh, there's no problem anymore. Why should we bother with gay rights anymore? Well, because of this history, precisely. That is one point where you definitely know more than me, this kind of history of sexuality, of gender, of oh, feminism and so on. And I mean, let's let's talk about the feminist elephant in the room. Alison Bechtel's name is mainly popular nowadays due to the Bechtel test. Her not really meant that seriously indicator whether a film deals with the role of women in a, let's just say, normal way or not. It's, it's more about the visibility of women, not necessarily whether or not it's a feminist uh, piece of art or not. 
The test is very simple. It consists of three steps. Are there two named female characters? Do these characters interact with each other? Do they have a conversation? And do they talk about something other than a male character? It's incredible to just apply these three easy steps and to see how many films, books, theater plays fail this test. In how many cases there aren't even two named female characters, uh, including my favorite, Shakespeare, of course. Or if they talk to each other, they only talk about men. Now, of course, this is not an indication of quality. Famously, Sex and the City 2 passes the Bechdel test, whereas Gravity, which has a central female character who's very present and capable, does not pass it. But still, it's just interesting to see that women are, even in the 21st century, not really there sometimes. They're ignored by the cultural products that we produce. So would you say that that notion, this this kind of feminist view, is also present in Fun Home. I mean, obviously, we see the beginnings of Alison Bechtel's awareness of not only her own sexuality, but how to express that politically as well, that queerness and femininity are political values that she yeah, has to fight for to a certain degree. That plays a big part in her coming of age as well. Do you think that that is central? And do you think that maybe you could read her father's story from a kind of historical viewpoint, this kind of comparison. Oh, well, my father never had the chance to express his sexual identity in such a way as I did. My father's story is a kind of cautionary tale. It's interesting. I expected there to be a lot more about her growing awareness, about her finding her identity as a feminist and her political lesbian identity as well as her sexual identity. It's not that central, actually. The book really mainly focuses on the relationship between the father and the daughter. And I think that's good, because otherwise it could have become more of a pamphlet than an actual story. But it definitely is present. I wondered at one point, actually, hang on, is this book going to pass the Bechdel test? <laughs> Which would have been ironic. But there are several female characters, all of whom have names, even though I can't remember them, of course, because I have a very bad memory for names. But they also talk to each other. They talk a lot about men, but they also talk about literature, for example. They talk about feminism. They talk about political action. So, yes, it does pass it. I think the father as a cautionary tale, that is difficult. Because on the one hand, yes, his life is a cautionary tale, but it's so much more. Because her relationship with her father is so complex, I think it would be reductive to say he's just used as a warning. Because she's also uneasy about her father. She's uneasy about her father's behavior. Because, let's face it, her father had sexual relations with several of his high school students who were minors. They were 16, 17, 18 years old. Well, that is not an all right thing to do. So I think he's, he's a much more complex character than just a warning. And he also is, again, another parallel maybe to Kafka. He is very much like the overpowering, threatening father figure that Kafka describes. He's horrible towards his children. He's horrible towards his wife as well. He neglects her. I wish there had been a bit more about Alison Bechdel's mother. Incidentally, the next graphic novel that Alison Bechtel um, has published is an account of a relationship with her mother. I'd like to read that then. <laughs> it's a bit more complicated because it also deals with Alison Bechtel's relationship with psychoanalysis, which is weird, interesting, but weird. Alison Bechtel really does sound like a 21st century Franz Kafka. <laughs> and I mean that as a compliment. <laughs> but I agree that the description of her father 
makes him not just the victim of the circumstances, he's just as much the villain. And in the end, I think that's one of the important conclusions that despite all the mystery, despite all the distance between herself and her father, Bechtel comes to, that she can still find some common ground in the sense that her father was a human being who had his own life and his own motivations. And there were some things where the two connected. So not just their homosexuality, which I think rather functions as a distancing device in many respects, because her father doesn't understand her coming out that much. But one of the most important connectors between the two is literature. And we mentioned the role of modernist literature in particular. And Van Home is so brimful of allusions to different texts, modernist poetry, great novels by Fitzgerald, by Joyce, by Virginia Woolf, plays by Oscar Wilde. Literature basically also plays a role in, in Alison's coming out because she realizes that she's a lesbian because she reads about lesbianism in a book. And that's the moment where it's not something biological that her body suddenly tells her, oh yeah, you like women. It's, it's something that she reads, that she processes intellectually. And that tells you a lot, not only about Alison, but about the entire family, which is a very, very literate family. The a story of how she realized that she was uh, a homosexual because of something she read reminded me of a friend who recently told me that he read the picture of Dorian Gray and realized that he was homosexual and I realized hmm I read the picture of Dorian Gray and I decided to wear suits and ties uh, so <laughs> I get the idea it's just a very different result for me that was another thing that I really liked about Fun Home all these literary illusions, especially because they are right up my alley. They are to the kinds of things that I love. Fitzgerald, not a big fan of him, but I'm always intrigued by him. <gasps> we'll have to do some Fitzgerald on the podcast. Well, yes, we should, definitely. But then she talks about Albert Camus. Albert Camus, my darling, my dear, my, my, my little honey butt. I, I adore the man, and uh, he's definitely one of the most influential and important writers in my life. Then there's a whole long passage, half a chapter essentially, about Oscar Wilde. There's no way an author could be more in my favor than by writing half a chapter of, the, of their book about rehearsing for an Oscar Wilde play. All these allusions, on the one hand, really ingratiated the graphic novel to me. But this comes back to this question again. Alison Bechtel also interprets not just the works of these authors, but also these authors' lives as something that is similar to the situation of her family. So don't you think that Alison Bechtel would agree with me that the author's life is very important for interpreting a piece of art? Well, she certainly delves into details about these authors' lives. She compares, uh, for example, James Joyce's difficult relationship with his children to her father's extremely difficult relationship with his children. But on the other hand, you always get the feeling that she's basically grasping for straws. Literature and the lives of authors and the text of these authors are one attempt to make sense of her father's life story, because there isn't much to make sense of in the beginning. So the one thing where she connects with her father, literature, because they were both big fans of literature, there she's looking for clues, there she's looking for some sort of resemblance to the situation that she is in. But you always get the feeling that, yeah, it's not quite right. There you have this modernist approach, that it's a mosaic of different bits and pieces. And maybe if you put them all together, it will all make sense. There is this big picture that will make sense. 
But in the end, well, it doesn't work out that well. And the one resolution that she comes to is that maybe despite all the differences and maybe despite all these complications, the one thing that she has with her father is some sort of loving family connection and nothing more. And it may have been complicated and it may have been very, very asymmetrical at times, but that's the one thing that she has. I wanted to mention another thing because you said that these allusions and the intertextuality of the piece basically made you love the graphic novel even more. In my case, in the beginning at least, it did the opposite. Because from the perspective of someone who loves graphic novels, well, this smelled a bit too much of trying to distance yourself from your own medium. That you try to get some respectability by saying, hang on, hang on, here, see, I quote Fitzgerald. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Here, I compare my father to Icarus. Um, see, I read a lot of literature. This is not a comic. No, no, this, this is like, like modernist literature. This is really, really good and important and complex. So I had to at least deal with that notion that maybe the literary illusions are a way of trying to cover your tracks, trying to say that you're dealing with something serious, despite drawing cartoonish versions of your own family. I think that just reveals how much of a snob I am, because for me, it is just taken as a given that any kind of discourse is going to be filled with literary allusions, with allusions to comedy, with allusions to popular culture, because that is the only mode that I'm capable of speaking in. Well, maybe I'm just as much of a snob, just when more aware of it, <laughs> when it comes to the medium of comics, at least. And there could have been many more allusions to the medium itself. Although there is, for example, a very interesting parallel that Alison Bechtel herself thematizes, that she compares her family home to the Adams family home. And that tells you a lot more about the family <laughs> life than any literary illusion maybe can. That is a misgiving that I had, but I think in the end, Bechtel manages to convince the reader that literature is not just a thing that she does because it's respectable. It's something that she really, really loves, and she really, really loves because it's one way of yeah, making sense of that strange, confusing life that she had with her father. So I think literature as a means of telling the story, isn't just there, I don't know, because you can make allusions and seem clever. It's very integral to trying to tell this life story. Sometimes real life is stranger than fiction, and maybe sometimes fiction is the only way we can really make sense of these utterly confusing and utterly random things that happen to us every single day. Definitely. I think anyone who's interested in literature and who's interested in literature in a professional way started doing that because they were struggling to come to terms with their own life. At least in my experience, most other literature students that I've met said, yeah, literature is a kind of way to deal with the questions I have. And I can be in dialogue with people from centuries, millennia even ago, about these problems. And I think that's beautiful. So I, I really didn't mind the illusions. I love them. Still, not enough Batman. <laughs> <laughs> then I think we are ready to draw a conclusion. So, Jonas, what did you think of Fun Home? Is it something that you would recommend others to read? Definitely. If you're interested in literature, as you probably are if you're listening to this podcast, if you're interested in identity politics, if you're interested in feminism, in queer politics, if you're interested in graphic novels, or if you just want to read a really good, excellent book, pick up Fun Home by Alison Bechtel. 
My recommendation is going to be a bit more ambivalent because if you're interested in graphic novels, maybe you should start with other things. There are other graphic novels that are similarly complex and self-conscious, but also use the medium in a more direct way, that are more aware of their status as a comic, as a graphic novel, without having to resort to trying to connect to serious literature. But as an autobiography and as an account of identity, queer identity, Fun Home is really, really amazing because it manages to balance, on the one hand, the complexity of life and trying to find your identity, but on the other hand, portray the mundaneness of it at the same time, that people are incredibly complex creatures and still they have these uh, everyday lives. And trying to come to terms with that and trying to tell your own story, even if it is maybe not as sensational as the Bachtel family story is, Fun Home really manages to bring that across. So as an autobiography, I would really recommend that you read Fun Home. So since you think the novel is bad and I should feel bad for liking it, what else would you recommend our listeners read? My recommendation is for anyone who knows anything about comics, not a surprising one. I will recommend the granddaddy of comic autobiographies, Mouse by Art Spiegelman. It has some parallels to Fun Home. It's also a double biography, autobiography, a young person growing up, having a difficult relationship with their father and trying to come to terms with that and the life story of their father. In Spiegelman's case, however, it's the fact that his father, Vladek, was a Holocaust survivor and that his mother committed suicide because she couldn't deal with survivor's guilt, basically. In Mouse, obviously, you have this formal gimmick that all the characters are portrayed as animals, which adds an entirely new level of interpretation. And there, I think, you have the awareness of the comics medium. You have this attempt to do something with the visual medium that you're working with that surpasses most other autobiographies. And how by now, a whole lot of them. It has become almost a commonplace genre that if you're an indie cartoonist, you have to write down your life story because that's what you do. But Mouse is still the number one. It's more influential than you can imagine. So I would recommend reading Mouse by Art Spiegelman. My recommendation has more of a thematic link. I want to recommend a book, or actually two books, that also deals with finding your identity, finding your identity as a woman, as a feminist, as a woman interested in other women. Namely, Oranges Are Not The Only Fruit by Janet Winterson, and also Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal by Janet Winterson. Oranges Are Not The Only Fruit is Winterson's first novel, published in 1985, the great success that really put her on the literary map, as the story of Jeanette, a girl who grows up with a devoutly religious sort of radical, evangelical, adoptive mother in England. It's also about how she starts discovering her attractions towards other girls and the difficult negotiations of family, sexuality and identity. While Be Happy When You Could Be Normal is an interesting counterpoint to this. Winterson returned to this time of her life in 2011 and wrote an autobiography, so one is a fictionalized account that bears some resemblance to her life. The other is clearly declared as a memoir. And it also includes the issue of adoption, because Winterson actually found her birth mother 
and this problem of having two mothers, one who raised you, one who gave birth to you. Now, what is the significance of that? So we have everything. We have family, we have identity, and we have this darned question, what is the relation between an author's life and their works? And it's only complicated by these two books. Oranges are not the only fruit, and Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal by Jeanette Winterson. But maybe you don't want to ask too many questions about your identity. Maybe you would rather we read something else. Then why don't you tell us? You can always give feedback to us. For example, there's our homepage, outsideofadogcast.com. You can write an email to outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, at outsideofahound. And we're on Tumblr, outsideofadogcast. And you can find us on Facebook. And obviously, you can find all episodes on iTunes where you can leave us feedback, but give us five stars, please. So it is this time of year where the days are getting shorter. Ding, 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 ding. Is, is that in a public sphere? Or is... It is that time of year where the days are getting shorter. Well, actually, the days are about to get longer again. Christmas is upon us. And indeed, our next episode will be published on Christmas Eve. But as a special treat, you'll get a second episode just two days later on Boxing Day. So we will have a double episode with double guests. But who these guests are will be a surprise. <laughs> no, it's not going to be Santa Claus. No. Also, the book or books that we discuss will be a little surprise. You can find pictures that give you clues on our Facebook page. Check those out. So, dear listeners, see you all on Christmas Day. We hope you have a magical time. That That's kind of a big hint, isn't it? Oops! Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com To the butterflies and bees To the butts and flies and bees? Yeah. And so, the birds and the butts. The birds. Son, let me tell you about the birds and the butts. <laughs> Don't you mean the birds and the bees, Dad? What was I just saying? <laughs> Every time you say bees, you should replace it with butts. You know, it's a real problem that the butts are dying out. It's because of our pesticides. I'm a butt keeper myself. <laughs> I've always wanted to have a butt keeper's outfit. I'm covered in butts. Ah, <laughs> uh, I really, really love butt honey. To butt or not to butt? <laughs> the answer is always to butt. To butt. To butt. Of course.